Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. This is part two of a two-part episode into the mysterious deaths surrounding the North Dallas cult led by Terry Hoffman, known as Conscious Development. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest you go back and do so. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. Back in 1978, Devereaux Cleaver was a typical popular teenage girl living in Dallas, Texas. She wrote poetry and was obsessed with the band Aerosmith. She had a crush on the cutest boy in her class, although he broke her heart after he let her on then rejected her. She liked to hang out at the mall with her friends and flirt with boys. She was pretty, with a halo of blonde hair and an outgoing personality. Some boys mistook her for being older than 14. She loved her father Chuck dearly and considered him her best friend. She often switched between saying she loved her mother Sandy too, or at other times just barely tolerated her. Devereaux and Sandy fought like cats and dogs. The girl was embarrassed of her mom's involvement with the meditation group Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul, and all her weird friends, especially the group's leader, Terry Hoffman, who seemed to have some bizarre control over Sandy and all the other group members. One night, Devereaux invited a friend to sleep over at her house she shared with her mom. She told her friend in advance not to be weirded out by anything she might see. That night, Devereaux developed a severe headache. Sandy offered to treat her. Devereaux reluctantly agreed. She and her mother went off to the living room, leaving her friend alone and begging her not to follow. But after a half hour, the friend grew bored and decided to sneak around and see what was going on. What she saw was the odd scene of Devereaux lying on her back in the darkened room lit only by candlelight. The room was full of incense smoke. Sandy was bent over her daughter, massaging her head and chanting incantations. When Devereaux saw her friends spying on them, she jumped up and ushered her out of the room. She begged her not to tell anyone, adding she only did this sort of thing to make her mother happy. Devereaux and Sandy kept fighting constantly until December of 1978. That was when Devereaux had a sudden change of heart. She began telling her father Chuck and her friends that she and mom had reconciled and that things were finally turning around. She was so excited to tell Chuck that she and Sandy sat down and had a real honest-to-goodness mother-daughter talk. Her mom was getting married to another conscious development member and she even asked Devereaux to join them on a pre-wedding trip to Hawaii. But Devereaux Cleaver never returned from that trip and Chuck received the one phone call every parent dreads receiving. That was when he was awoken in the middle of the night to be told his daughter was missing. The teenager would later be found dead. Her body was cut, bruised, and battered from being dashed on the rocks at the bottom of the lagoon where she drowned. Chuck was in shock as he flew to Honolulu to see his ex-wife in the hospital. 
When he got there, Sandy acted just as broken up about Devereaux as he was. That is until Terry Hoffman stepped into the room. Then Sandy immediately shut off the tears and abruptly changed her tone. She looked at him coldly and said, Devereaux would be a lot better off in heaven. Over the next two years, Sandy Cleaver devoted herself even more to conscious development and especially to Terry Hoffman. She transferred ownership of her house to Terry and began paying her rent for the privilege of living there. On August 24, 1981, Sandy wrote a strange 13-page letter to her brother, Croom Beattie IV, that was part autobiography, part justification why she was entitled to the family fortune. Croom was already estranged from his sister. He knew Sandy's involvement with Terry Hoffman was bad news, and he'd come to have his own doubts about the circumstances surrounding Devereaux's death. He was just as shocked as everyone to learn that Devereaux had written a will leaving everything she had to Terry Hoffman. In the letter Sandy sent to Croom, she tried to justify the idea of her 14-year-old daughter writing such a will. She also mentioned how she had convinced her 78-year-old housekeeper, Louise Watson, to write one too. Wheezy named Sandy the executrix of her meager estate and Terry Hoffman as the alternate executrix. She also added that she and Wheezy planned on taking a trip to Colorado to scout locations for a new conscious development center. After Croom finished the letter, he turned to his wife and told her he didn't think Sandy would be around much longer. And it turns out, he was right. On September 9th, Sandy Cleaver drove her rental car straight off a sheer cliff in the mountains near Cripple Creek. An Air Force Academy paramedic found the car wreckage as well as Sandy and Louise Watson's broken bodies tossed out along the cliff base 450 feet down the mountain. Croom Beatty demanded answers. He hired a former prosecuting attorney named Jim Barklow in Dallas to contest the will. Barklow argued in court that Terry had learned to control Sandy's mind through a combination of hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy. Terry didn't do herself any favors when she admitted on the witness stand that she gave her followers tranquilizers on a regular basis. She also admitted that the money Sandy left her was sitting in her personal account, not the business account for conscious development. Terry couldn't even keep her own dogma surrounding conscious development straight. When Barklow asked her pointed questions on the witness stand about some of the key tenets of her religion, Terry kept saying she either couldn't remember or acted confused about some of the very things she had written in her mail-order lessons. Terry agreed to settle the case after only five days of testimony. She agreed to pay Croom $112,500 in cash and 40% of the net proceeds from the sale of Sandy's house. The trial appeared to rattle Terry, and for a while she shied away from the spotlight. She stopped leading conscious development meetings and cut off contact with most of her remaining followers. But this only lasted a couple years, and by 1985, Terry had re-established her meditation group and correspondence courses in Dallas, and got her jewelry business up and running again. It wouldn't be long after that when the strange deaths of unconscious development members began to occur again. I'm Nate Hale, your guide on this meditative journey into another unexplained mystery, and this is The Conspirators. Terry Hoffman didn't seem like your typical cult leader. By the time she was in her 50s, she was a short, plump woman with a sweet, all-knowing smile. Some of her followers said Terry reminded them of her grandma. 
Her followers believed Terry was the reincarnation of a mystical Catholic saint and that she had powerful abilities to see the past and future and to shield them from harm. She could even cure cancer. But it was through her sheer charisma she was able to convince dozens of her followers that they were the chosen few selected by God to battle the demonic entities known as the Black Lords. Terry would gather her group nightly when they would meditate and arm themselves with symbolic swords. These could be anything from plastic swizzle sticks to metal rods to car antennas. During these sessions, Terry would chant and randomly call out the number of black lords they'd slain, almost like she was announcing the scores in a football game. When Terry Hoffman was in court, there were four conscious development members who came to her defense. Within a few years, three of those four would kill themselves. One of them was Robin Otstadt, a former school counselor with a master's degree in social work who wrote curricula for troubled teens in the North Dallas School District. She became a conscious development member in 1974 after a bitter divorce left her emotionally devastated. But although Robin was well regarded in the community and thought of as a smart, well-educated woman, friends and family began to worry when her behavior took a radical turn after she fell in with Terry's conscious development group. After Sandy Cleaver's death, Robin began to fill the void Sandy's death left in the group. She took over the duties of rewriting the conscious development correspondence courses. She also began to do things like fill her house with protective crystals and gnome doll figurines. She started to sleep with twisted lengths of copper tubing underneath her bed, which she claimed helped protect her from the Black Lords invading her dreams. By 1986, Robin Otstadt was claiming to be having a love affair with an invisible CIA agent named George Jeffrey. Terry convinced Robin that George was in psychic communication with her and was helping train her mental abilities so that she too could become an agent for the American government. Investigators later found several journals Robin kept detailing her romance with the invisible secret agent. She described having dates with him, receiving heartfelt love letters from him, having long romantic talks in her mind, and even talked about a camping trip she took with him to Colorado. But according to some other members of Conscious Development, Terry told Robin she and George would never be able to marry because of matters of national security. By the mid-1980s, Robin had become estranged from her family, including her parents and teenage son. By 1986, Robin began showing signs of severe depression. Her journal entries from that point on spoke about how her metaphysical self had turned against her, and that she felt her energies were being sapped away in the spiritual realm by the Black Lords. When she told her closest friends in conscious development about her concerns, several of them decided they wanted nothing to do with her after that. They were all afraid the Black Lords would infect them as well. This included her close friend Tamara Taylor, a vice president of a Dallas advertising agency. As soon as Tamara heard about Robin's trouble with the Black Lords, Tamara cut off contact with her. After that, Robin sent a letter to Terry Hoffman expressing her belief that Tamara's own invisible CIA lover, a man named Martin, had actually threatened her life as she tried to contact Tamara again. Five days later, Robin wrote a journal entry in which she pleaded for her life with Martin through psychocommunication. But Martin responded angrily toward her and told her he was going to kill her. On April 19, 1987, Robin called her ex-husband and told him that she had contracted a terminal case of viral hepatitis that she contracted from a banana peel. Her ex-husband was dumbfounded by this bizarre conversation. He insisted that Robin see a licensed physician and get some further blood tests to confirm this diagnosis. 
On April 21st, Robin went to the doctor appointment. The blood test from that appointment would later confirm Robin didn't have hepatitis or any other deadly disease. Later that same day, she also went to see Terry. After that, she returned home and shot herself in the mouth with a 38 caliber revolver. Like all the other cases before, Robin Otstadt left behind a last will and testament bequeathing all her money and worldly possessions to Terry. The suicide note she left behind read, I am apologizing to Terry 3,000 times a week on all levels of my being for the highly offensive, rude, and vulgar comments made to her last week. I love her dearly and beg her forgiveness someday. Later, when her family went through her belongings, they were shocked to find her bizarre journals along with a substantial quantity of prescription drugs, needles, and syringes in her home. They also found a white index card stuck to her bathroom mirror containing several daily affirmations, the last of which read, Go forward for Terry, for the Masters. By 1987, conscious development had begun to branch out of just Dallas and established a chapter in Chicago. One of the members of the Chicago branch was a talented artist named Mary Levinson. She came from a well-to-do family who ran a chain of men's clothing stores founded by her grandfather. Throughout her life, Mary Levinson was described as deeply troubled. She suffered from chronic pain and had attempted suicide a half dozen times throughout her life. But Mary found a new sense of purpose in conscious development. Terry Hoffman was averse to travel and only visited Mary twice in Chicago although the two women did have weekly phone consultations. On November 30, 1987, Mary Levinson was found dead in a Chicago motel room. On the nightstand alongside her bed, police found a partially smoked pack of cigarettes, her motel room key, a blank notepad and a pen, a glass of soda, and almost 100 pills. The autopsy also revealed a small needle puncture on her left wrist. She left a video for her family in which she mentioned using her $125,000 divorce settlement to pay off debts and make contributions to animal welfare societies. She also said she donated some of her money to a charitable organization which she refused to name. Mary's family later learned that she had used her mother's charge card to purchase $3,000 worth of fine jewelry in the days leading up to her suicide. She also changed the beneficiary in her life insurance policy to a former boyfriend she'd met in conscious development named Dr. Larry Keyes. Mary's family felt certain Terry Hoffman was behind all Mary's strange behavior. The investigators suspected Terry had learned her lesson from all her prior legal troubles and made Mary take extra steps to keep the money trail from leading directly to Terry so that the family would be unable to contest the will. Officially, Mary Levinson's death was ruled a suicide and, with no direct evidence tying her death to Terry Hoffman, Mary's family had no recourse left but to grieve. That same year, family members of another conscious development member named Charles Southern Jr. were alarmed when they discovered him walking the streets of Chicago, babbling incoherently. Before then, Charles had been a respected English professor and assistant chairman of the English program at a local college. But when his sister found him and took him to the hospital, he was barely coherent, enchanting over and over again in a strange language. After Charles joined the Chicago chapter of Conscious Development, he quickly rose through the ranks and was soon teaching classes and leading his own meditation groups. It's known that he even traveled to Texas and visited Terry Hoffman at her home. When Charles was hospitalized, two Conscious Development members came and visited him daily. But after his treatment and recovery, Charles got out of the hospital and began to distance himself from the cult. He told his family he planned on taking a trip to India to get as far away from conscious development as he could. 
He spoke to his mother three days before he was due to leave on his trip and assured her everything was going well. But that was the last anyone heard from Charles Southern. When Charles's parents didn't hear from him for another two weeks, they drove all the way from Cincinnati and broke into Charles's home, looking for him. Inside, they found his passport with no stamps indicating he had ever visited India. They also found a small vial containing a drug which tests revealed were chemically similar to the deadly poison curare. Charles's coat and hat were folded inside out and placed on some sort of ceremonial stool. Later, the family would learn this was a Nigerian tribal symbol for death. They also found two barely legible scrawled notes that appear to be Charles's last will and testament, naming Terry Hoffman as the executrix of his estate. One legible portion of one of the notes said, I came under a bad influence, and I was trying to fight myself. To this day, Charles Southern Jr. has never been seen again. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance remain a mystery. The next conscious development member to die under strange circumstances was Terry's fourth husband, Don Hoffman. He was a former electrical engineer who joined conscious development along with his first wife, Alice, in 1974. In 1980, he divorced Alice after 20 years of marriage. Alice actually signed a waiver allowing Don to marry Terry immediately without any legal waiting period. Terry and Don got married one month after Terry divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson. Over time, Don began complaining about a series of physical ailments, including chronic pain and shortness of breath. On September 16, 1988, Don checked into a hotel room in Las Colinas, Texas, and committed suicide by overdose. He left behind a three-page suicide note and three videotape messages for his loved ones. In the suicide note, Don claimed to be suffering from terminal cancer. But Don's story was a lot like Mary Levinson's. An autopsy showed he did not have cancer and instead died from a drug overdose. Don's son, Rick, was able to record a telephone conversation between him and Terry Hoffman in which she told him that his father definitely had cancer. Only the Black Lords had created an illusion preventing the medical examiners from seeing the truth. As you can probably guess, Don also left all his worldly possessions to Terry. On March 3, 1989, Don's children sued Terry for wrongful death under the belief she had used hypnosis to convince Don to commit suicide. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jill Bounds was another longtime conscious development member who died under unusual circumstances. But unlike all the other members who purportedly committed suicide, though, there is no question that Jill was murdered. The real question is if her murder was connected to conscious development. Jill became a member of Conscious Development sometime in 1973. And although she remained a devout follower of Terry Hoffman for several years, she allegedly left the group in December 1982. After several news stories and magazine articles began appearing tying Terry to a number of suspicious deaths. Although Jill had gone back to school following her divorce and earned her degree in psychiatry, her behavior became increasingly erratic over time. She began telling friends and family that Terry had infested her home with a plague of cockroaches out of revenge. After that, Jill began referring to Terry as a witch. 
and she began telling people close to her that she was afraid of her former guru. On September 20, 1988, Jill Bounds was found bludgeoned to death in her bed. A window was found open in her room. Family members claimed this window was one of the only ones now protected by Jill's home security system. It could not be removed from the outside. This seemed to indicate her killer had intimate knowledge of Jill's home. After the murderer finished beating Jill to death, the killer appeared to have cleaned himself up in the bathroom afterwards. Among the evidence left behind, one of Jill's journals was found with several pages ripped out of it. Several of Jill's valuables, including a Cartier watch, her stereo, and some gold and jewelry were left untouched. Jill's mother later claimed to have discovered a strange occult drawing on the ground outside Jill's daughter's bedroom, along with a red toy robot with the head crushed in. Although Jill had broken off contact with conscious development for a while, her family later told authorities that Jill had begun visiting Terry Hoffman for readings just a few months before her death. Although no one was ever charged in Jill's murder, one of Jill's longtime male friends, who was also in conscious development, made some rather suspicious statements following her death. He told Jill's family members he knew Jill's alarm code. He also made an odd claim to Jill's sister, informing her that he was the beneficiary to Jill's life insurance policy. Although that turned out not to be true, and she instead left all her belongings to her family. There's no direct evidence tying either this man or conscious development to Jill's murder, and yet investigators who looked into the case half speculated that perhaps Jill was expected to be another victim who left all her money to Terry Hoffman, only somehow the job got botched. The next to die were David Goodman and his wife, Glenda. David was a well-educated, tenured professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. On the surface, he seemed an unlikely person to join a cult. He, too, was one of Terry Hoffman's most devoted followers. Like Robin Otstadt, David was one of the group members who testified in Terry's defense at her probate trial. He had an MBA from Berkeley and a doctorate in management science from Yale. He had also devised a complex computer system for picking stocks that later made him wealthy enough to quit teaching. But David wasn't quite so lucky in love. He was a whiz in mathematics growing up and he went on to marry his high school sweetheart in 1961. The couple had a son eight months later and David dropped out of the University of California, Santa Barbara to support them, taking a job as a computer technician. He saved enough money to return to school where he earned a math degree, then later an MBA from Berkeley. In 1965, he accepted a high-paying job as a research analyst with the Corning Glass Corporation in upstate New York. A second son named Tony was born later that same year. But the corporate life didn't suit David, and in 1967, he took a leave of absence from that job and began to work for his doctorate at Yale in management science. He was offered a teaching position at Harvard Business School, but he decided instead on accepting a position with Southern Methodist University. Six months later, his wife of 10 years asked for a divorce. The breakup of his marriage was a devastating loss for David, and he ended up seeking counseling with Terry Hoff. Financial records show that by 1979, he was spending approximately $150 a month on private counseling sessions with Terry. It was through Terry that David got married twice more to two different younger women who were both members of Conscious Development. Both those marriages failed quickly, though. Then in 1984, David felt he finally met his true soulmate, a devoted Conscious Development member named Glenda Carlson. David's parents much more approved of this marriage than his previous two. Those women had been half David's age while Glenda was much closer to David's 40 years. Terry insisted the couple had been married in previous lifetimes and the pair quickly became inseparable in this life. 
But as David and Glenda grew closer together, they also sunk even deeper into conscious development. This also resulted in them distancing themselves from their friends and family. Glenda sent her young daughters to live with her father in Singapore. David reportedly told others he considered the girls to be a distraction from the serious work they were doing in conscious development. By late 1988, David had told his parents and adult son Rick that he could no longer be part of their lives either. According to journals, the couple left behind, they both participated in several deeply insightful meditations that occurred after taking some unidentified capsules Terry provided for them. Records also indicate they gave several expensive gifts to Terry, including a 1988 Lincoln Continental, a two-bedroom house, and more than $100,000 in cash. Other journal entries show that Glenda and David had become convinced they were the reincarnations of Adam and Eve, then later became the Roman gods Venus and Jupiter. They also reportedly heard God's voice instructing them to cut off all contact with everyone in their life who might be out to steal their spiritual energies. The journals also went on to describe their ongoing struggles against the Black Lords. Police found a discarded note in the trash which mentioned Glenda's desire to kill herself. In the fall of 1989, David and Glenda dropped out of sight. Over the space of several weeks, neighbors began to complain about a putrid odor seeping out of the couple's East Dallas home. Then, just days after Thanksgiving, firefighters kicked open the door, only to reveal a grisly scene. The smell of putrefaction and a swarm of black flies drove the first firefighters back out of the house. Police were summoned and they followed the trail of dead insect carcasses toward the garage at the back. David had converted the garage into a cozy den with a sofa and carpeting. In one corner of the room stood a makeshift shooting gallery. There was a paper target held up by a metal stand. A pair of pellet guns were leaning against a chest freezer. On the coffee table in front of the sofa, there was a box of Remington high-velocity shells and the manual for a Ruger semi-automatic pistol. David and Glenda's bodies lay next to each other on the carpet in front of the coffee table. The Ruger lay close to David's hand while a 22 caliber revolver was next to Glenda. Each of them had been shot point-blank in the head. Medical examiners determined they had been dead for more than a month. Considering the house was locked and nothing appeared to be stolen, police investigators determined that David and Glenda died in a suicide pact. They would either shot themselves or each other. Police retrieved a crumpled up letter Glenda had thought about sending to her son from the trash. In the letter, Glenda said, I am extremely depressed right now and would love to have the nerve to kill myself, but so far I can't find the gumption. Glenda's final journal entry spoke about receiving a warning from God about the quote, leeches and meddlers who would try to persuade her that she would never get her energies. Financial records later revealed that before they died, the Goodmans had given Terry Hoffman gifts totaling up to more than $110,000. The Dallas District Attorney soon opened an investigation into Terry Hoffman over the Goodmans' death along with her many other suspicious activities. But although interviews with surviving cult members convinced the DA that Terry had incredible sway over the minds for true believers, there wasn't sufficient evidence to charge her with any murders. The DA just didn't feel a jury would ever convict someone of hypnotizing someone into killing themselves. Several family members of all the conscious development members who allegedly committed suicide sued Terry Hoffman. These civil suits accused Terry of using hypnosis and mind control techniques to drive their loved ones to their deaths. But in October 1991, Terry Hoffman filed for bankruptcy, which brought an abrupt halt to all the civil suits. 
In Texas law, when a bankruptcy is filed, all civil actions have to be put on hold. Although in response to Terry's bankruptcy filing, new criminal fraud charges were then brought against her, alleging she was hiding substantial assets to avoid her creditors. In 1994, Terry Hoffman was convicted of 10 counts of fraud and faced a potential 50 years in jail. But after spending a year in jail, Terry appealed her conviction, claiming there was insufficient evidence to prove the charges. The conviction was then reversed, and Terry Hoffman was subsequently acquitted of all charges. In 1995, the TV series Unsolved Mysteries featured an episode on the mysterious disappearance of Charles Southern. And although the show producers received several tips, Charles Southern's body was never found. Once again, investigators who have studied the case suspected that either Charles killed himself in such a way that his body would never be found, or perhaps something happened that botched the job so badly some conscious development members disposed of the body to keep the death from being tied back to Terry Hoffman. Terry pretty much got out of the guru business after that last brush with the law. She later married another conscious development member named Roger Keneally and took his last name. She started a website in which she started marketing herself as an artist. The website sells photos of angels and heavenly beings, some of which have cartoon faces and bodies digitally painted on them. She and her husband also published a self-help book on personal finances. According to a memorial website, Terry died on October 31, 2015. The conclusion of the obituary reads, So our leader has left us on the physio-astral plane, but nevertheless still exists on all the other levels. Until we meet again. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Anthony for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the good word about the conspirators to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry, you can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, follow us along on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. So you can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.